I know my school's shiny floors, a broken water fountain, and box chocolate milk I buy for six fifty cents. I know Miss Martinez and her happy handshakes at her door before each fourth grade morning. I know how to write and draw the picture poems Miss Martinez taught us to paint our feelings. I know to never forget to scribble my name and date on the bottom. I know Reese's on the blacktop and the length of my golden brown crane wings in the desert sun. I know my BFF Amparo climbs Los Columpios like wind. I know aftercare until 6 p.m. when Papi comes to get me between his two jobs and carries me home on his strong shoulders so high I find flight. That was Aida Salazar, reading from Land of the Cranes, her new novel in verse about a Latinx girl who learns to hold on to hope amid darkness and despair. Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month with two of our favorite Latinx authors. First, I'll talk with Aida Salazar about how one word, deportation, led to her heart-wrenching new novel, Land of the Cranes. Aida is also the author of The Moon Within, which won an International Latino Book Award for Middle Grade Fiction in 2019. I'll also talk with Francisco Stork, the author of such acclaimed YA titles as The Memory of Light and Irises. He'll tell us about his latest novel, Illegal. This page-turning thriller follows Sarah Zapata and her brother Emiliano, who are threatened by a violent cartel in Mexico. Illegal is a sequel to Francisco's earlier novel, Disappeared. First, here's Aida. Hi, Aida. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me again, Suzanne. You know how much we loved The Moon Within. I have been delving into Land of the Cranes. It's stunning and just heartbreaking. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Land of the Cranes is a book that I wrote from my heart. It is a story about nine-year-old Betita who lives in Los Angeles. She is a migrant along with her family and they are undocumented. And her father has told her that she is a bird and like all migrants, they should be free to fly. And she's told her she's a bird because they've come back following an Aztec prophecy that said that they once lived in Aslan, which is the Southwest United States, and they went down to central Mexico City to establish their great city in the navel of the universe, and that would one day that they would return to live among the cranes. And so she thinks she has wings, and she flies on her father's shoulders. So one day she is waiting for her father to come pick her up from school, and he doesn't come because he's been rounded up in an ice raid, and he is deported. When she and her mother try to visit him at the border in Tijuana at 
a place called Friendship Park, they miss the exit and end up on the other side in Mexico. And when they try to come back, they're unable and they're taken into detention. And so Betita writes picture poems from inside detention about all that she experiences and all that she feels inside the detention center to her father and to her lawyer to try and plead for their case for political asylum. How were you able to get inside of Betita's head into her mind, this sensitive nine-year-old to tell her story? The way that Betita came to me was kind of a magical experience. Um, and I know a lot of writers have, have talked about this, a lot of creative people who, who feel like they, um, the muse sort of speaks to them. And, and this was the case for me. I was studying a picture book about the loss of a grandparent. And out of nowhere, my, book, my pen just wrote deportation. And within minutes, I was writing Betita's story as if it were, as, as if I were her personal secretary. And she was, she came to me fully formed and she was telling me how, how she was, where she lived, what she liked, what she loved, um, and what she aspired to do. And, and by the time I was done, I was in tears knowing her story and and I had written about, you know, 30 pages and and in in one week I finished 50 pages and the entire outline of the story and it was it was a remarkable but I was very happy to 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 see it. So to answer your question in some ways I was open and I was able to receive her story and was willing to tell it. We often talk about the power of fiction and the power of stories to help us really feel a situation. And I felt like you took things that had been in the headlines and made them so personal and so understandable and heart-wrenching. It's interesting because the story came to me during a time where the situation, the migrant situation and the immigrant, um, undocumented immigrant situation was not as extreme as we saw it in 2018. I wrote the story in March of 2018. And at the time, my community was under siege. The mayor of Oakland had told us that, had warned the community that ICE was going to be doing raids. And the entire community was terrified and we were, they were hiding and not going to work. But yet and still, ICE rounded up 300 undocumented people. It was part of the Trump administration's retaliation against sanctuary cities and sanctuary states like California that was not persecuting undocumented immigrants. That was kind of, was part of what informed the creation of the story. And to my horror, absolute horror, months later, that's in, in June and May and June and July of that year, we saw the zero tolerance policy of the Trump administration, which essentially started to penalize brutally undocumented immigrants by separating them from their children as they entered the, the border seeking asylum, which, you know, asylum is, is not an illegal act. It is a very legal act, especially in the United States. It really turned the world's eyes to the border, the situation at the border. But that is something that had been happening prior to that. And that story had been written prior to that. And so there's this kind of prophetic, to my 
horror, but this kind of prophetic sense about the book. And I attribute that to Betita because I feel like in some ways that spirit, that little muse was telling me, this is what's coming. And this is something that we have to talk about. Could you describe your writing process here, how you flesh out the story? This is your second novel in verse, and I love how you're able to tell a story through poetry. Well, Betita's story came in verse, and so I, I, I listened to that first. But then as a writer, I really try and craft it and try and uh, make sure that the voice of the child that is speaking in first person is really authentic. And that language, the word choice, the expression, the point of view, how a child would see things at that age with that amount of vocabulary and what they know and don't know, all of that is expressed. So I really strive to, to distill it um, in a way that, that, that made that absolutely clear. It was different when I wrote The Moon Within that child was older, a little wiser, had more, more vocabulary, had more, had a different worldview. When, when I write in verse, it really has to do with voice and embodying the voice of the character in the best way that I can. And then as a poet, I have all of these tools, right? We have the, the tools of imagery. We have the tools of alliteration or of white space. In this, this particular story, it was so painful to write at certain points because the topic is very difficult, because the experiences are very difficult. And often with poetry, it gives us that space. When, there, when you end a line and then there's nothing but white space, then you're able to assimilate the intensity of what you've just read or the beauty of what you just read and kind of sit with it in that white space. It doesn't rush you through. And so I think as a poet, I really try and lean into the tools of poetry to, to kind of amplify um, the story-making process. This child has so much courage and strength to get through some really scary experiences. How, you just felt that channeled through you, that strength and that wisdom? Yeah, I would say I've seen it in countless people. I, I was an undocumented child. My family came to the United States. I was born in Mexico and my family came to the United States when I was nine months old. And we didn't receive our green cards until I was 12. So I spent my entire childhood undocumented. And I knew very intimately what it felt like to fear la migra and to feel not fully legal, quote unquote. And, and I understood and I'd seen other family members who had been detained or had been deported or had crossed the border, never to be seen or heard from again. These are all the experiences, the lived experiences that I try to bring into that. And more than the experience itself, I saw my community and, and my own family, the spirit of resilience and the spirit of, of agency and innovation to try and make the best out of very, very difficult circumstances. And I wanted that to come through for Betita. I I imagine that you didn't have the types of stories like children will now have with Land of the Cranes where you could see yourself and your experience reflected. You know, I didn't. I didn't. Sadly, I didn't see myself reflected until I went to college and I was in a Latino literature course. And I read Elena Maria Viramontes and Sandra Cisneros and Rudolfo Anaya. 
And for the first time, I understood that not only were my stories valid, that I too could be a writer at that moment, because I, I actually had started writing poetry after my sister died when I was seven. When I was 13, she was 17. And my sister committed suicide. And at 13, I didn't understand the world or why my sister had done what she had done. And so I went to poetry to try and resolve, to try and explain and understand the world and the pain that I was feeling. All of that writing stayed in notebooks and journals my entire life until I got to college. And when I got to college, I said, oh my goodness, everything that I've written and and scribbled inside those journals are, are worth something. And I too can be a writer. But it took that. When I became a parent and I took my child, my children to the library, we couldn't find any books. I mean, we, there was a small section, but we really couldn't find any books that showed their, their world to them. When I asked the librarian, do you have any princesses, princess books of, you know, with brown princesses? And he's like, nope, you got to write it. And he was joking, but I was like, well, you know what? He's right. He's absolutely right. Let me, let me go, let me go do this. And, and so I did, I started writing stories for my children. And, but then I realized that it's actually a, a, an incredible political act to do so because it changes the narrative from what we've, we've been told for, for them and for us uh, and for the publishing world in general. What do you hope your young readers will take away from the story? I want readers to feel, to see themselves. And if they don't see themselves, then I want readers to understand, to reach into their own reserves of compassion, to understand why people flee their homes. And how incredibly brutal it is to incarcerate a child. But more than anything, I think I want my readers to know that their voice and their, their power is available to them if they ever encounter or experience something as an unimaginable or even dark as, as what Petita did. And that they see her as a guiding light and that they understand that their agency and their power can stand up and make change. You spoke of this earlier, but I just wondered if you could sort of reiterate, you've expressed it, why representation in children's literature is, is so crucial. It is very easy to move in the world and feel erased if you're a child that comes from a marginalized community. It is very easy to not see the beauty that you hold and disregard your own self-worth because you aren't celebrated, because your skin color isn't celebrated, because your culture and your food and your languages are not celebrated in the dominant culture. During these times, what gives you hope? My work, I I find that I look to my work, I lean into my work because the, the children have that hopefulness and they have that voice and we're seeing it more and more on on social media and and in in the world the young activists fighting for climate change and are fighting all sorts of different fights and and challenging the systems that have been hurting them and the planet and that's incredibly inspiring and I I love to be part of that conversation and part of of providing maps and tools for them to to continue to to make the world a better place Thank you, Aida. I love Land of the Cranes, and I'm grateful that you could share the story and your own story with our listeners today. 
Thank you so much, Suzanne. Before we get to Francisco, I wanted to remind you that this unprecedented election season offers an opportunity to engage students of all ages in our country's democratic process. Right now, students in grades K through 12 can cast their vote for president by participating in the Scholastic Student Vote, a virtual mock election that has been running since 1940. Visit scholastic.com election to learn more. Now, here is award-winning author Francisco Stork. Hi, Francisco. Welcome to the program. Hello there. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you here. And I wanted first for you to tell our listeners about Illegal, your latest novel, and how it picks up from Disappeared, which was published in 2018. Disappeared is the story of uh, Sarah and Emiliano, sister and brother, who live in uh, Juarez, Mexico. Sarah is an investigative reporter and begins looking into the disappearance of so many women that uh, disappeared from Juarez during a number of years. And as she begins to to investigate the disappearance, she begins to discover that, you know, possible corruption with the government and um, begins to get a a sense of who's responsible for this. And so her life becomes uh, endangered. She and her brother, Emiliano, have to flee into the United States to escape this danger. Sarah actually thinks she has a good case for asylum because she's being persecuted by government authorities and she she fits under the categories of, of who asylum should be granted to under the law of the United States. So when they cross over into, into the United States, she turns herself over seeking asylum and Emiliano doesn't know whether to return back to Mexico, eventually decides to go to Chicago to be with his father. And so that's where Illegal picks up. You know, Illegal is the kind of the mirror image of Disappeared, only it happens in the United States. And it's the connections of corruption and evil that are portrayed in, in Disappeared now appear kind of in the American version <laughs> in, in Illegal. And, and so I wanted to show this kind of relationship between the two countries and between, you know, what we consider evil in Mexico it also has its uh, uh, roots in the United States as well. Now, Sarah, she gets death threats once she is able to piece together this story of corruption and murder in Mexico. She ends up in the U.S. at a detention facility, and she just seems to be caught between these two worlds, really, where, she, like many immigrants, she's in a no-win situation I wondered what inspired you to create the character of Sarah. Did you have models you looked to as you developed her? Well, you know, initially in Disappeared, I, I wanted to create characters that were complex characters that, that stood in contrast to the, the caricature of the Mexican that was being portrayed at the time of that. At the time of that, it was a presidential election. Uh, and I really wanted to create a character that I guess personally I wanted somebody to admire. <laughs> and so I created a character who's, who has this love for truth and this, and, and this courage. She, she's Mexican, you know, and, and, and so that's the genesis of, um, of Sarah. And it, and it kind of, it follows her into the United States where she's not able to use that 
courage. I mean, she's in a, in a prison, basically. And so this strong faith that she has, and including her faith in the United States, you know, where she thinks that the United States has the best system of laws, despite its many faults, you know, that faith begins to de- to diminish and, and to, you know, to take some heavy blows as she, as she realizes that she's just like, she's a piece of paper in somebody's desk, you know, in, in, in a big stack. And so that, that's the, you know, that's a different kind of courage that she has to have now. Absolutely. That's well put. I wondered if you could read one of the opening passages of the book for us and set the stage for our listeners. Sure. This is one of the first entries by Sarah in, in the first person uh, as, she, um, as she tells her story from the detention center. Three weeks ago, I was a reporter in Ciudad Juarez writing about the hundreds and thousands of girls who disappeared from the city streets. Most were discovered dead weeks or months later, but some were never found. My editor received an email threatening me and my family if I wrote about Linda Fuentes. Linda, my best friend, had disappeared months before. I investigated the source of the email, eventually discovered where Linda and other young women were being held captive. The state police, with the help of the FBI FBI office in El Paso, located Linda and Frieder and the other women. Before Linda was freed, she sent me to the cell phone belonging to Leopoldo Hinojosa, the man responsible for her enslavement. Hinojosa set out to retrieve his phone and to kill me and my family. We left our house a few minutes before it was destroyed by machine gun bullets. My mother went to live with her sister in the interior of Mexico and my brother Emiliano and I had no choice but to cross illegally into the United States where I planned to seek asylum while Emiliano went with our father to Chicago. I kept the, he- the cell phone in the hope of finding someone in the United States who could open it and use the information to help other women still in captivity. I can only imagine all the connections that phone will reveal between Hinojosa and other corrupt government officials or cartel members. Two of Hinojosa's men attacked us in the desert after we crossed into the United States. One of them ran away and the other was wounded in a struggle with Emiliano. We couldn't let that man bleed to death, so I went to look for help. Oh, it's such a, a riveting, heartbreaking story. It's also effective, I think, the way you set up the narrative. As you said, you have Sarah in the first person and then her brother Emiliano. What led you to that device, which I think is, is so effective and draws the reader in? Well, you know, I, I, this appeared was in the third person. And I, I, I actually wrote illegal in the third person. And um, after I gave a draft to my editor, I think, you know, he felt that he wasn't, that I wasn't connecting. He wasn't connecting enough with, with Sarah. That, you know, but the third person creates a little bit of distance, which is, which, which I love in many ways. But in this particular case, I really needed to get into, in, into Sarah's uh, thoughts and emotions. And also into Emiliano as he goes to live with his estranged father and the conflict, internal conflict that that, it, that, that represents. And so the first person really became a better vehicle for that intimacy that, that was needed. I mean, the story is particularly interesting since you practiced law for many years. And yeah. I wondered, you know, what research you did to bring illegal to life on the page to really have this story, you know, resonate with what are otherwise gruesome headlines that we see. Yeah. 
You know, I have to tell you, I really love the way that you asked that question because you didn't say, what did you do to make sure that the story was accurate? You said, what did you do to bring the story to life? Which is, <laughs> it's really, it's really a different, I mean, to bring a story to life, I think the author needs to have like a personal connection, you know? And I think for me, for me kind of started way back then when I was in law school, I was a third year uh, law student in, at Columbia Law School in New York. And I signed up to, for this immigration law clinic because it was like the one opportunity you have. And those clinics are the one opportunity you have in law school to actually kind of practice law. And I ended up representing a, a Haitian refugee, one of the kind of quote-unquote boat people. He had come over, he had been picked up in Miami and then sent to Brooklyn of all places, you know. So I would travel to Brooklyn to this kind of, uh, it was an old Navy prison kind of. It smelled like a warehouse, smelled terrible. It was dark. Uh, there were actually actual bars. My, my uh, junk lot had never had not been outside to see sun, the sun in two months. I think all of that kind of stayed with me. And when, and when I was writing about illegal, I mean, yes, I mean, I did the research and, and figured out what detention centers were like. And I talked to lawyers who visited them, you know, who visited the places every day. But it was really, it was, I was really drawing upon that, those images from way back then. <laughs> Wow, that's really that's really something. And yet you told this story as a thriller, this immigration tale. Why a thriller? Um, well, part of it is that, you know, I had just finished, uh, I, before I started writing Disappeared, I had just finished this very introspective book about a young woman who um, suffers from depression and, and a failed suicide attempt. It was, you know, it was a story of her healing, but it was very it's very intense. I wanted something more extroverted. I wanted something with action. This desire for me to kind of write something like that coincided with what was happening in our country uh, with respect to immigration being made kind of a, a, a national issue, you know. And so, I, you know, those two things kind of came together in my mind. And to me, it kind of, I mean, the story, you know, the immigration stories of people coming to the United States of refugees are just as you say, are, you know, they're sad. But when you when you write about them in the form of a of a thriller, you stay away from this kind of manipulation of the reader's emotion towards pity, you know, because you're writing something that's exciting and and that's that is keeping them uh, on their toes, so to speak. But at the same time, you know, their sufferings are. I mean, there's so much agency of the characters that's required in a in a thriller that that you really do not let the reader kind of feel sorry for them. You know, you, you rather you, you, you get them to admire them and so forth. But that's a, that's a different thing. I wondered if you could tell us about your own childhood experiences and how they inform your, your work, your writing. Uh, I was born in Mexico. My mother was a single mother and she married uh, Charlie Stork, who was traveling through Mexico at the time. And uh, he adopted me. And so gave me this, you know, this, this non-Mexican sounding last name, <laughs> Stork. <laughs> So I, we came to the United States when I was nine and Charlie died soon after. And I think that my, you know, as I look back now, I'm 67 years old, so I can sort of psychoanalyze myself and try to figure things out. I think that the, that his death and leaving as my mother and myself alone and, and not, not having a lot of money, having to live in the projects and uh, in El Paso, Texas, kind of, um, kind of is at the heart of a lot of my stories. They're all, they all deal with Mexican-American characters. They all are kids that are kind of, some of them are very bright, but they don't quite fit in. They all have this kind of search for belonging. And sometimes they, they look for it in the wrong place, <laughs> as I did in many cases. 
So, so I think that that that, Im- that immigrant experience, uh, learning Spanish for the first time in school when I came over, you know, getting whacked for speaking Spanish in the playgrounds, you know, getting going out on a date and getting told, you know, at the last minute that um, my parents have a rule that you that I can't go out with Mexicans, you know, all of those things kind of inform me <laughs> in some way or another. Looking back now, in when you were in high school 50 years ago, how has the national dialogue around immigration and Mexican-Americans, how has it shifted or stayed the same in the past 50 years? Kind of the hatred that, that I see now, you know, and the, and the kind of the hostility just wasn't just wasn't as present then, you know, as, as, um, as it is now. And I, of course, I lived in the, I, I lived in the world. I lived in Texas, you know, which was in El Paso. It's like El Paso and Juarez were like one big city. We would go back and forth uh, to the dentist for barbershop to shop, you know, and it was just it was just you didn't see it as a separation the way it is now. I mean, a lot of people opened the doors for me, <laughs> and and so I'm very I'm very grateful for them, and I'm I think I'm grateful for the opportunity that there's you know there's something very in my mind very friendly, loving about the the Latino culture. I don't want to lose that, and I want to I want to be able to contribute that to to our contemporary society in the United States. What do you hope your young readers will take away from illegal and disappeared? Yes, I, I think for me it's always about about increasing the ability to see, you know, for young people to see other people that are not, uh, that don't come in contact with perhaps that often, for young people to see themselves as characters, you know, treated with dignity and with, with admiration. I mean, when you read a book that you can tell that the author just admires the character, you know, and it's just a, it's just such a beautiful thing when a young person like recognizes in the character something that they've thought about themselves, you know, that they didn't think anybody else had, had thought about. <laughs> and so that's that's I want them to take away that openness, you know, the that ability to to see better and with more clarity the world that surrounds them, and you know, the suffering also, as in the case of uh, of refugees. I do I do want to write about representation that is not stereotypes, you know, representation of, of human beings that happen to be Mexican-American. So the representation is, of, of you know, it's a representation of complexity. It's a, it's a representation of, of different people within the Mexican-American community, within the Latino community, rich, poor, good, not so good. Uh, I think all those characters are, you know, it's important to portray. Francisco, the illegal is a beautiful, riveting story, so well told. And we're delighted that you were able to talk with us. Thank you very much. Great questions. And I congratulate you for all your work. And thank you for thinking of me for this. Thanks so much again to Aida Salazar and Francisco Stork for joining me. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the titles we discussed and for a list of diverse books for all readers, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Mackenzie Catrizula, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more scholastic reads next time.